Hello and welcome to a bonus episode regarding herbal history. For our first episode, we'll talk about a paper by Dr. Lazarus Lawrence. Within several different families of plants, such as the Barbary family, the Poppy family, and the Ranuliclus family, have a series of phytochemicals called isoquinin alkaloids. These compounds are known for their unique biological activities on different biological systems. For this episode, we'll talk about berberine, a biochemical found in a great many families of plant, but it's most predominantly found within the common berberi, or better known as berberus vulgaris. Above is a label showing the list of genera and families of plant as chemicals found in, and the actual structure of the said chemical. This paper covers a series of different papers regarding the health benefits of this biochemical. But first you have to know that in terms of biochemistry, the highest concentration of berberine is found in the common barberry, specifically the bark. Only 8% of the bark extract contains the actual biochemical. So it's unlikely you'll get a biologically active dose from consuming a small amount of bark without extracting it in considerable quantities first. There's a way around this and it'll be covered in a future video. Now prior to getting into some of the studied elements, the details regarding the studies are not fully revealed. So I'll pop by and say, give specific claims a pinch of salt when I read them out. Now that's out of the way, let's get started. First we'll cover the cardiovascular effects. The research paper by Wang et al. in 2020, cited by the paper, there is some evidence of berberine blocking the PDIER stress pathway, reducing the damage caused by vascular smooth muscle cell proliferation and cell self-destruction, which happens during mechanical stretching. It is also reported that specific medicines already used in cardiovascular protection have improved benefits when combined with berberidine. It is plausible that due to the alteration of how much calcium is in the heart tissue, the reduced delay in depolarization caused by an increase of sodium may limit or delay heart failure. Now the full details I cannot explain in, well, full detail because I'm not a medical doctor. The human body is kind of out of my wheelhouse. So as always, I'll be leaving the paper's link in the description below. While the possibility of enhancing to a moderate degree common medications is possible, the rest I cannot confirm or deny, so take it with a grain of salt. Another paper referencing this article is one by Dr. Cao and Su in 2019. This biochemical seems to activate the AMPK biochemical, which inhibits fat synthesis, whilst also inhibiting another fat synthesis molecule called MAPK. In terms of a diabetes treatment, it was found that in certain instances, berberine can limit the KCNH6 potassium channel. This reduces the risk of type 2 diabetes in the pre-diabetic stage. It also seems to be a general nerve protectant. I'll take this with a grain of salt, but the paper also mentions that it can increase function in isla G cells, which is one of the insulin-producing biological cells within used in producing insulin. 
although common medicines already in store, seem to do it more effectively. Now on to the treatment of breast cancer. Berberine seems to bind to various receptors on breast cancer cells such as RXR, PTP1B, TNF, TRAF6, ACE, FRMP2, SIK3, LC1, and so on and so forth. This does not kill the cancer, but it does slow down the growth process, indicating a plausible supplement to common chemotherapy, a phenomenon that's not uncommon in most new cancer drugs found in plants. There's also been several preclinical investigations studying the effects potentially of berberine on neurological disorders. Based on these tests, it seems that berberine can downregulate NFB, which reduces cell self-destruction and increases the free radical scavenging within that system. Now this is preclinical trial related, so we do not know if the chemical would do the same thing in a living system rather than a test tube situation. You also don't know if the chemical will pass through the blood brain barrier. So take this with a massive grain of salt, I guess. Now I'll finish off by the researchers' conclusions. The biochemistry of this chemical seems to suggest that berberine alters the biochemical pathways within the human body that lead to cancer, cell self-destruction, and cancer metastasis. There are already clinical tests that have been done relating to inflammation-related problems and to a certain extent cancer prevention and combination cancer treatment. However, there is great difficulties in how berberine is distributed throughout the body, absorbed in the body, and removed from the body. Most of the current work seems to revolve around formulating new formulations and derivatives of this biochemical for future use. That about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Odds and Ends All Tech Edition. In this episode, we will revisit Dandelion. This video draws from a paper written by Dr. Bernadetta Liz and Dr. Bieta Olez of the University of Lodz, Poland. The paper hopes to lay out the history of dandelion use, the botanical nature of dandelion, and the possible health benefits of consuming dandelion. The dandelion has been historically used in Arabian, Chinese, and Indian medicine as well as in more recent years, Native American medicine. Here's the result of the study. The botanical characteristics of the dandelion are that this is a herbaceous perennial belonging to the aster family, specifically the genus Taxicum, which means bitter herb in Arabic. The term dandelion comes from the French word dandelion, spelled D-E-N-T, the D-E, line, which translates directly to teeth of the lion, referring to the teeth-like edges of the leaves. Similar phenomena can be found in other languages such as German and Spanish. Dandelions can grow pretty much anywhere, and it's hypothesized it was first moved to North America via Vikings in ancient times. It has very large tap roots. It has a large tap root and can grow pretty much anywhere, and can regenerate from pretty much anything, so long as one part of the root remains functional. The first known mention of dandelion that we know of was by the Greek naturalist Theophrastus who lived in 371 BC to 287 BC. He recommended that this should be taken as a tonic to treat freckles and liver spots. Historically, dandelions were also consumed by the Celts when they were fermented into wine for consumption. 
Various Anglo-Saxon tribes also consumed it to prevent scurvy, or to use it as a laxative. In ancient Chinese medicine, dried dandelion roots have been found in various records as a treatment for swelling. The famous Islamic healer Avancina mentioned that the latex of dandelion could be used to treat glaucoma. He also recommended it as a treatment for liver protection and an antidote to scorpion bites. One of his contemporaries also recommended it as a stomach tonic. It was continued to be used in Arabic medicine in ancient times in the 10th and 11th century to treat liver and spleen ailment. In 1485, the herbalist Ortis Senatus wrote a book on different herbal medicine concoctions and mentioned dandelion in it. In the 16th century, the physician from Germany, Leonard Fuch, described dandelion as being used to mitigate gout, diarrhea, blisters, and spleen and liver complaints. In North American Aboriginal medicine, the concoctions of the root and leaf were used to treat kidney ailments, dyspepsia, heartburn, menstrual cramps, jaundice, chest pains, and various types of wounds. Several tribes also observed that the plant possesses mild narcotic properties. It was also historically used in dyeing deer skin and other properties and other objects. In Chinese medicine, it's often combined with other herbs to treat hepatitis, at least in the past. I'm not sure about now, though. In more recent years, during World War I and II, dandelion was a source of food during the periods when many people suffered nutritional deficiencies. In traditional Mexican medicine, as well as Venezuelan medicine, it is used to treat malaria, although how effectively I do not know. And in Mexico, it is used as a blood tonic, or laxative. In Kosovo, it is used to treat toothache, and in Ghana, it is used to treat hypertension, historically. Based on studies by various researchers that are compiled into this document, it was found that there's a great deal of antioxidants found within the plant. Although I was unable to find a comparison with other more common plants in cultivation, such as blueberries, blackberries, and other berries, which are also very high in antioxidants. Antioxidants, by the way, reduce oxidative stress and perform important processes in blood platelet formation as well as help cleanse the liver. These properties are found in all antioxidants. Dandelion roots also contain inulin. Inulin is a prebiotic, meaning that inulin, if consumed, can promote the growth of probiotic bacteria. It was also mentioned in this paper that plays a role in eliminating pathogens from the gastrointestinal tract, which it could potentially through the probiotic bacteria outcompeting the pathogens. It was also mentioned that it can repress obesity and cancer and osteoporosis, although I cannot verify this claim, so take it with a massive grain of salt. A study by Dr. Kim and Dr. Balk found that a fermented beverage made from dried dandelion leaves actually increased the amount of lactobacillus bacteria in the gut. Another study suggested that caffeinic acid could be utilized to create anti-diabetic drugs through its ability to cause greater secretion of insulin from pancreatic B cells. This chemical can be extracted directly from dandelions or be converted from chlorogenic acid using a process called cinnamol esterase. There are also claims about treating cancer with this, but due to the nature of cancer and how difficult it is to treat, I'll be skipping this section, as there are measurable Still, he's trying to figure out new cancer drugs, and most of them fail. 
But I can talk about some other stuff. There were some smaller studies whose preliminary results indicate potential research opportunities going forward, such as one paper by Zhang et al. in 2008 and one paper by Dr. Ran et al. in 2015. This was a mouse study and a rat study, respectively. The former found a decrease in plasma triglyceride levels. The rat study seems to have found that there was a decrease in body weight akin to the standard drug Oracet. Several other experiments done on rats were also done, but no human-led studies have been done as of right now, so no confirmation one way or another could be made on the actual medical properties of the dandelion. We'll conclude with a few interesting trends regarding dandelion. Dandelions have been historically used as a substitute for coffee in certain instances. However, it's gained a comeback in Poland. Polish people consume dandelion coffee as a substitute for decaf in vegetarian restaurants. There's also a market for dandelion juice in Germany as a folk remedy to improve eye health. In the United States, the dandelion extract is used to flavor different items such as dairy desserts, candies, gelatins, and even cheese. And in the Middle East, it's utilized to make jams and cakes. And Dabble covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another Herbal Bonus video. In this episode, we'll talk about a paper by Dr. P. Shiala Banu of the Sri Vidakalam College of Pharmacy based in Pradesh, India. I may have mispronounced the name. This paper documents the historical uses of different select herbs throughout history. We will cover each species one by one. We'll start off with ephedra. Two species of ephedra are commonly used as herbal medicines, ephedra sinca and ephedra equestiana. Extracts of these two species have been used for thousands of years by Chinese healers. It was later adopted by the ancient Romans as well. The system of medicine was codified in the 15th century, and Chinese texts recommend ephedra as an antipyretic, which would be a medicine that reduces fever, as well as an as well as a painkiller. In Russia, laboratory studies were done to see the effectiveness of ephedra in treating joint pain, and some preliminary studies suggest that this may be the case. In the 1600s, Indians and Spaniards in the American Southwest used ephedra as a treatment for venereal diseases. Later studies suggest that the biochemical transdorine could be used as an antibiotic. Other researchers in China, such as Dr. Chen and Dr. Smith published a monograph recommending ephedrine as a treatment of choice for asthma, a derivative of ephedra. Injections of ephedrine were also used to increase aggression in kamikaze pilots during the Second World War. Prior to World War II, it was used historically to treat narcolepsy, complete heart blockage, and strokes. Right now, most of the time it's used as a food supplement for bodybuilders. The next plant is called Cava, or Piper Mephacicum. There's a report of 72 varieties of Cava, which differ in appearance and chemical analysis. The beverage is commonly consumed as an intoxicating, calming beverage to promote sociability. Cava is traditionally made by mixing the grated, crushed, or chewed root with cool water or coconut milk before straining into a mixture mixed with plant fibers. Several extracts from this plant were also used historically in Europe as diuretics. It was also used as a folk cure for headaches, colds, rheumatism, 
and STDs, as well as inflammation of the uterus. It also has historical use as a sedative, aphrodisiac, and urinary antiseptic. The next species on our hit list will be Ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo is an ornamental plant grown worldwide, and it's currently sold as a dietary supplement in the United States to improve blood flow to the brain. Most used in modern days to sharpen mental focus in healthy adults and dementia patients. Most of the research right now is related to using ginkgo in the development of new new drugs to treat circulatory disorders, impotence, and vertigo. In ancient times, the Chinese and Japanese ate roasted ginkgo seeds as a digestive aid and means of preventing inebriation via alcohol. It's also historically used to treat asthma and the swelling of hands and feet from exposure to damp cold. Next would be Valeriana walchiania, or valerian root. Despite its name, it's not actually a root, it's a large stem that's underground attached to said root. It has historically been used for medicine after being harvested in autumn. The scent is considered disagreeable right now, but in the past it was used to make perfume. Traditionally, it's been used to treat many different mild problems such as migraines, headaches, anxiety, fatigue, mild seizures, sores, cuts, acne, and rheumatism. In current year, it's commonly marketed as a means of treating insomnia. How well it works remains unknown. Next we'll cover Hypericum perfortatum. This species is a perennial aromatic shrub that has historically been used to treat neurologic and psychiatric disturbances such as anxiety, insomnia, bedwetting, irritability, hysteria, and several other mental-related problems, as well as non-mental problems such as fibroistis, neuralgia, gastris, gout, hemorrhaging, and pulmonary disorders, as well as rheumatism. In modern days, it's commonly promoted as being an antidepressant or a weight loss drug. How well it works for either purpose remains unknown. Next, we'll cover the Eucaria species. Three different species are used, Uncaria tormentosa, Uncaria guanonesis, and Uncaria gambar. It's also known as cat's claw. It's a large, twining, woody vine with small, sharp thorns at the base of leaves. It has a long history in South America as an anti-inflammatory medicine, as well as a common remedy for rheumatism. There's also traditions of using it to treat gastrointestinal ulcers, tumors, and gonorrhea, as well as dysentery and various skin problems. I cannot confirm or deny whether or not any of these are actually viable as medicines, so use at your own risk. The specific species Uncaria gamber has been used historically as a tannin agent and astringent, as well as an antidiuretic medicine. Next we'll cover the Angelica species. Various species of Angelica have been utilized throughout history. In China, they're commonly called Dongguai. These are biennial or perennial species of the carrot family, and are found throughout Asia, Canada, and Europe. In the East, they have been historically used as the antidote to all womanly problems. In China, ginseng was the medicine for males and angelica was the medicine for females. It's been used extensively in menopause, syndromes, anemia, abdominal pain, migraines, headaches, arthritis, and various other ailments that I cannot pronounce. In current years, commonly used to treat menstruation problems and menopause ailments. The next species on our hit list would be Critigus oxycantha, 
or the common hawthorn. This is a cool plant with white flowers and red berries. These species are found all across Europe, North Africa and Western Asia. The fruit is actually pretty tasty, but also has historical use as a herb. Within the above regions mentioned, it has historically been used as a means of treating blood pressure related ailments, as well as various heart related ailments. Hawthorne has a reported anti-spasm effect and a sedative effect. The Aboriginals of Canada and the United States have historically used it as a diuretic and a means of stimulating appetite. Flowers and berries have also historically been used to treat sore throats, but mostly it's now consumed as a marmalade or a jelly to be spread on toast. Next we'll talk about aloe. Aloe's been the most common folk remedy in human history, specifically the third most common. It's been mentioned in the Egyptian Book of Remedies as a laxative. There's also evidence of the ancient Egyptians using it to treat dermatitis. Depictions of treating people with aloe also dates back to the, the year 1500 BC, as a papyrus written around that era has formulas written down on how to use aloe in both external and internal ailments. The ancient Greeks also used aloe as a laxative, and Dioscorides created several different treatments using aloe to treat hemorrhoids, genital ulcers, hair loss, and chapping, as well as boils, mouth irritation, and inflammation. In the 17th century, it's been historically used to treat eczema and senescence. The earliest known uses of aloe in Western culture was in the 1930s, where aloe was used to treat radiation burns. In modern days, aloe is commonly used as a laxative and a wound healing device. The next species is called Phylloca americana, also known as pokeweed. It grows in several parts of the world, and in the past, it has been used in both industrial production and medicine. It's been used historically as a means of treating skin diseases and STDs, as well as cancer, parasitic infections, and other common ailments. But the most common uses were as a emetic, which means it makes you vomit, a narcotic, and something to gargle with. It was also used in industry to increase the redness of wine as a dye compound. The next species will cover is Lycorhiza glabra, or licorice. The licorice flavor is commonly harvested from the roots of the licorice plant and has been historically used since ancient Egypt. It was used historically to prepare the pharaohs for the afterlife as a drink called Mysus. A drink called Mysus is consumed today in modern-day Egypt and it is made from licorice. Dioscorides historically used licorice to treat asthma and heal wounds. It was also historically used to treat edema by Western herbalists. After being introduced to the Aboriginals of North America, they began using licorice to treat diabetes. And in traditional Chinese medicine, licorice is a panacea plant that treats everything. In modern days, China uses licorice to treat Addison's disease and as a flavoring agent to flavor soy sauce, as well as cure tobacco. The next species we'll cover is Remus pusheria. It was first used in American medicine in 1877 after being introduced as a laxative by Mexican and Spanish priests in California. The next species we'll cover is Cinna, a herbaceous vine. It has historically been used as a laxative, specifically the leaves and pods. The last species we'll cover is Canavalia glabidia. This species is a legume plant 
used historically in traditional Indian medicine, and is currently used as a means of reducing the risk of coronary heart disease by lowering your cholesterol. But that all covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to Herbal Bonus number 4. In this episode, we'll talk about the production of artemisium. Artemisium is an anti-malarial drug that also has effects on viruses and other pathogenic species of the Protozoa kingdom. The details of how it was discovered is complex and was covered in a previous video, link in the description below. But to make a long story short, it was found mostly in Southeast Asia and China. In the latter location, it was used for traditional Chinese medicine since 168 BCE. The drug unfortunately is present in only very small amounts per plant and usually makes up less than 1% of the dry mass of said plant, which increased the cost of production quite substantially. The current goal of the WHO and several other organizations is to reduce the cost of artemisium down to 10 cents. To that end, the biosynthetic pathway of how artemisium is produced has been studied intensively. Artemisium is derived from the biochemical precursor found in many plant species called pharsesyl diphosphate, which itself is synthesized from two biochemical pathways, the MVA pathway and the MEP pathway. The full details are outside my area of expertise since biochemistry is not my forte. But as a consequence of figuring out this biochemical pathway system, artemisian has been studied intensively to try to increase the production of this plant-based chemical. And different pathways have been done in order to try to increase the production of the biochemical artemisian. And four general groups have come into being to try to improve the production of this chemical. Non-transgenic production, transgenic plant production, transgenic micro-production, and transgenic production in other plant species outside of Artemisia and Nua, the original origin of this biochemical. Still others are working on a means to produce it artificially. We'll cover each one in detail. Much of the non-transgenic work to increase Artemisian content in Artemisia and Nua is focused primarily around selective breeding and the creation of bioreactors and cell cultures. The primary source right now, however, in that research is in vitro culture. The details regarding bioreactors will be covered in a future video, specifically Alltech exclusive number 150. But various attempts at manipulating plant cell culture, medium, and environment to try to improve the production of this element. These include abiotic elicitors, the interesting compound called chitosan, manipulation of plant hormones, and the manipulation of nutrient content in the medium. For instance, using glucose instead of sucrose, double the amount of artemisium produced by cell culture. Cell cultures of artemisia annua roots, when combined with the chemical chitosan, have a six-fold increase in artemisium, although the final concentration is only 1.8 milligrams per gram dry weight. The next method is using transgenic Artemisia annua. Due to the fact that Artemisium is at its highest peak during the flowering stage of the species, genes from a mutated Arabidopsis plant, 
specifically the FPF1 gene and the CO gene were incorporated into Artemisia annua. The FPF1 gene promotes increased flowering, and the CO gene is an early flowering gene. As a consequence, this transgenic form of Artemisia annua flowered 20 days earlier than the non-transgenic form. However, no significant difference in Artemisia levels was observed upon flowering. The next attempt at genetically engineering Artemisia annua was done using the gene which was incorporated into Artemisia annua via agrobacterium. This produced a 60-70% to 70% increase in Artemisium, although the final product was still quite low, far below what was required to get the production cost to 10 cents. The further attempt was using cotton genes, specifically the FPS gene. This would increase the production of FPP, which would increase the rate of Artemisium production. Through this process, the plants are able to produce 8 to 10 milligrams per gram of dry weight artemisium, which was 2 to 3 times greater than the controls. However, the long-term productivity remains unknown, as the experiments were put to an end relatively recently. Next, we'll cover transgenic non-plant materials. This represents the current production of artemisium in modern times. Due to the ability of microbes to produce biochemicals in high amounts, such as E. coli and common yeast, various secondary metabolite pathways have been engineered into such microbes to be grown in vats to produce the biochemical desired. The genes for Artemisium biosynthesis have been identified, or more specifically, two genes. One is called ADS, and the other is called cyp 71 AV1. These genes produce precursors to artemisium. Intensive work done with carotenoids have shown that E. coli can produce a large amount of biochemicals once genetically engineered to do so. In one such test, a biochemical of interest called amorphodiene was found to be increased by 10 to 36 fold when produced through E. coli growing in vats. Various bioreactors have also been made regarding artemisium production through the use of incorporating the ADS gene to produce precursors to other precursor forms of artemisium. Other genetic engineering projects such as altering the ERG9 gene in yeast and the incorporation of both the ADS and CYP71AVI gene into the yeast strain alongside a gene that alters NADPH oxoreductase production was able to produce a new genetically engineered strain of yeast that produces the biochemicals artemisic alcohol, artemisic aldehyde, and artemisic acid. The conversion of these precursors to artemisium is well understood and currently and currently there are plans to produce this artemisium through this process. On average, one vat can produce 150 milligrams per liter of these precursors. So in all likelihood, this will become the mainstream way of producing artemisium well into the future. Other groups are trying to incorporate ADS genes into other plant species. One such group incorporated the ADS gene into tobacco. 
This transgenic tobacco also showed an increase in precursors far greater than what is found in the wild or normal plant Artemisium annua, although to a far lesser extent than what is found in the bacteria colony as well as the yeast colony. Currently right now there's one last project going on. They know the biological foundations of the biochemical artemisium is a trioxane biochemical and their current attempts to create something akin to artemisium in a lab from scratch using pre-existing hydrocarbon and hydrocarbon based biochemicals. Although it's unclear if these synthetic derivatives will be developed and how well they can mimic the effects of artemisium. Well, that all covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to Herbal Bonus Number 5. In this episode, we'll talk about the herbology of Cassifa filiformis, or as it's more commonly called, the love vine. The love vine is related to daughter, a parasitic plant, and like its relative, it parasitizes other trees and other species. The main host trees are mango, citrus, avocado, nutmeg, clove, etc, etc. It has the bare minimum amount of chlorophyll and gets the primary nutrients, including photosynthate or photosynthesis-based sugars, from its host. Hence its Latin name, hoster, which directly translates to one who draws or drinks or drains from others. The seeds can be spread easily by ocean currents, birds, and wind. Hence, this species is found all across the tropics of the world, as well as some parts of the subtropics. Several preliminary research projects have been done to determine the medicinal properties of this parasitic plant because it's been historically used by many cultures for that purpose. But to get back to the morphology quickly, the plant will move, yes it sounds weird but the plant actually moves, until it reaches contact with a host plant. The roots will then Penetrate either a stem that's fleshy in nature or leaf, and from there begin sucking up moisture, nutrients, and sugar from said plant part. The growth of the host will be suppressed and sometimes the host will die, but in either case, given enough time, the parasite plant will then flower and produce seeds. The seeds are spread by wind, water, and of course, birds. Based on the genetic map, it likely originated in Africa, as that's where most of the genetic diversity of the species lies. It has historical use in many tropical and subtropical locations. In Africa, it goes by many names, and has been historically used to treat cancer. Now whether or not it works remains to be seen, but the point is, historically it has been used for that purpose. It has also historically been used to treat African sleeping sickness, a parasite infection that causes confusion, poor coordination, numbness, trouble sleeping, and eventually death. This species was also used to make shampoo that was used to promote hair growth and prevent male pattern baldness, as well as a means of destroying vermin. In Benin, it's been historically used to treat hemorrhages. In southeastern Nigeria, it's historically used to treat diabetes and liver disorders. In South America, this species is used historically for ceremonies, human ornaments, and garlands. In Asia, it's been historically used to treat impotence, epilepsy, male pattern baldness, snake bites, hemorrhoids, and disorders of the liver. In Australia, it's been historically used to treat 
jellyfish things. It was also experimented with to see if it could be used to make paper. This was discontinued due to the fact that this plant can kill its host and transmit plant pathogen. The juice has also been historically used worldwide to reduce labor pain and as a lubricant. But history is not the only medical interest lied. There's some modern studies to see what type of medicinal properties exist within this parasitic species. In modern studies, several in vitro and rat studies have been done to determine what type of effects these plants have on human biology. You'll start off with antioxidant activity. It has it. But once again, in case you missed several of my other videos, antioxidant properties are found in pretty much every edible plant we know of. So this is not very special in that regard. In terms of anti-cancer properties, in an in vitro study, it's been found that four identified biochemicals found within this plant have cytotoxic properties on four different cell lines of cancer cells. These biochemicals are axinophen, calcifin, dicentrin, and neolistine. In terms of studies regarding African sleeping sickness, an in vitro study was done using the biochemicals dicentrin, calcifin, acetylphin, surinim, Dimazine, acetirate, and through this process, it was found that acetophene, dicentrazine, and cassiophene are poisonous to the parasites that cause African sleeping sickness. Specifically, the species Trisoma brucei. Whether or not it will work in people remains to be seen, however. A crude extract has also been tested on Candida in an in vitro test, and it was found that the crude extract had significant anti-candidal properties. What biochemical is responsible for that behavior remains unknown. It was also found to be non-toxic to brine shrimp. Next, you'll talk about some in vivo studies regarding their use in treating different diseases using rat studies. You'll start off with reversible hepatotoxicity. This would be liver damage caused by chemical reaction, such as poor choice of drugs. This is commonly used if a medicine is found to be bad for the liver and anti-heptotoxicity drugs are administered to reverse that damage. In a rat study, it was found that it was found it had some reversing properties within the hepotoxicity situation, but no comparison was made, at least written down within this document. So I cannot know by how much or if it's superior or inferior to baseline medicine. A similar thing happened with antihypertension medicine tests, as well as painkiller and anti-fever slash anti-inflammatory activity. Although in the case of painkillers, it was found to be equal to diclofenic sodium, a common painkiller used in arthritis. In terms of antimicrobial activity, a crude extract was obtained and was found to have antimicrobial activity on several different species of bacteria and fungi. In terms of the effects on pregnancy and fetal development, it was observed that the extracts cause infertility, slower fetal development, and birth defects in rats. So its use as a medicine to help with the birthing process may be a bit dangerous. There's other mentions of heptoprotective activity, antimalarial activity, toxicity studies, diuretic studies, and so on and so forth. But they're light on the specific details 
As such, they will not be covered in this video, as no comparisons have been made. But I'll cover them quickly. Anti-malarial and heptoprotective activity. Benefits shown, but no comparison. Acute, delayed, and subacute toxicity. Plenty of information, but no detailed on what the LD50, or the amount that makes it toxic, is. Aside from the subacute toxicity, which indicates 800 milligrams per kilogram, causes subacute toxicity. No symptoms are listed either. Relic activity and vasorelaxing activity. Benefit mentioned, but no comparison with other medication. And that will covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another herbal bonus video. Today we'll talk about the hapoploxin pine, a subspecies of the eastern white pine of Canada and the United States, also known as Pinestrobus variety chiapensis. This subspecies is native to southern Mexico. This species has a long history within Central America being utilized in its native Mexico, as well as in northern Guatemala and parts of South America such as Venezuela and Colombia, and South Africa as imports. This video will not be, strictly speaking, a full-on herbal video, but it will be a showcase of all the uses of the subspecies by the people of Mexico. The earliest known evidence of utilization of the species goes back to the colonial period in Mexico. During this time, the logs were used for shipbuilding purposes. The high demand for spare masts and spars was high during the early 18th century, because during that time, war and storms caused incredible damage to the Spanish fleet during that era. The continuous need for repairs and shipbuilding led a series of expeditions to southern Mexico, leading to the discovery of large pines that could be used to make new ships and repair old ships. These logs were often flowed down rivers. One such river was called the Alcourt River in Chalapas. From there it was sent to Cocasalos port and shipped via Veracruz to the dockyards of Havana. This event created a large cultural shift. Indeed, the Alcourt River translates to the felling, as it was named after the process of felling these large pines. Seventeen years of continuous logging depleted the pine stands, and as a consequence, use of this tree ended between the years 1747 and 1748. In current year, however, due to the expansion of civilization, many of these many of the haplooxin pines have been chopped down. This is due to the fact that the main use of this subspecies is wood. In current year, you can mostly find these pines in the forests outside of the towns. Between the 1960s and now, the trees were historically chopped down and brought by mules to different towns, as it takes now farther and farther trips outside of the towns in order to get such trees. It's become expensive, combined with the fact that chainsaw rentals and animal rentals have also become more expensive. Use of this subspecies in Santa Maria is no longer profitable, and other plants such as cowba, mahogany, and cedro are being utilized in its stead. However, across the rest of Mexico, most construction lumber is derived from haplooxin pines. It is considered a medium-quality wood, intermediate between the high-quality woods of cowba and cedro, and cheap, low-quality timber derived from plants such as saiba pitadra. Due to the large size of the logs, rural houses are often built from 
these trees, and pretty much all rural needs. Now on to the air uses of this subspecies. Another aspect of this plant would be its use of the resin. The cones of the Hapiloxin pines are rich in resin. This resin is very flammable. As a consequence, historically, these pine cones have been used to start fires for cooking and lighting torches. Although thanks to electricity, the use of these cones have disappeared in modern days. The resin also has used as an ointment for wounds and bone fractures. The resin is typically generally applied to the wounded area. Following that, the wounded area is then placed in either a cloth or cast until such a time that the healing is done. It is said that the resin reduces the healing time. A similar treatment is given to backaches and wounds on domestic animals. This species is also used to nurture coffee plants and coffee plantations as a companion plant, as well as a living fence. In spite of the situation where this plant has been used extensively, very few serious attempts have been done to protect it on a wide scale. Some individuals protect seedlings and saplings, or establish small orchards and plantations, but a good chunk of it is being chopped down to grow corn, coffee, or established pastures for cattle. But somehow, paradoxically, the people of Mexico also established a new range for a species. In the Sierra Norte mountain range, Oaxa, this land range used to be a cloud forest which was cleared for growing corn and later abandoned. As a consequence, seeds that have been long since dormant within that region, suppressed by the primordial cloud forest, have allowed a new pine forest to form in that region. However, that new forest is now being threatened by further expansion once again of grasslands and croplands, as well as the importation of exotic species for forestry purposes such as the Australian pine tree and the cedar of Goa. These two species seem to outcompete this secondary forest quite effectively. The researcher behind his paper, Dr. Rafael F. Castillo, has suggested that further conservation efforts need to take place to protect the species from extinction because the current use of the tree is unsustainable in its current form. And that book covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another herbal video. In this episode, we'll talk about the ethnobotany of the Reca Albanian herbology in North Macedonia. Within the Balkan region of region within Europe, Many of the first and most intricate ethnobotanical and herbal research papers have been developed and published. Amongst these groups, the Reca Albanian village seems to be the center hotspot of multiple ethnic groups that exist throughout the Balkan region. As a consequence, the people of the Reca Valley have amongst the widest array of herbs utilized within a particular community. As a consequence, the researcher Dr. Reiner Borchetta hoped to document and learn about the folklore surrounding the plants within this region and compare the herbology of this valley with those of Albania proper and northern Macedonia. Let us begin. Those that exist within the Reca Valley are separate from the rest of from the other regions within Albania and northern Macedonia. This is because they're constrained to mountainous regions. Prior to World War II, all the villages in the Reca Valley were a mixture of Christian Albanians of the Orthodox sect 
and Sunni Muslims. After World War II, the Orthodox Christians moved to parts of Macedonia in different villages, becoming part of the Macedonian Orthodox Church as a result, leaving only the Sunni Muslims within that region. The traditional economy within these mountainous regions is based on pastoralism, such as sheep, rearing, as well as subsistence mountain horticulture, as well as the gathering of wild fruits, herbs, and porcini mushrooms for sale at city markets in recent decades. During the course of this paper, many of the local medicine men, village elders, etc., etc., have been continuously interviewed to learn about the ethnobotany and use of plants within this region, and hear the results. One of the maple trees native to that region, called Acer Pseudoplatinus, known by the local name Panja, is used in much a similar way to maple syrup in North America. A mixture of the living parts of the trunk, called a cambium, combined with the sap, is collected and consumed raw. A tuberous plant called Acampus morio, known by the local name Salap, is consumed for its large tubers. In ancient times, they used to dry these tubers to make a herbal tea from. Another species called Ultrophilos ursi, known by the local name Uvencaj, is likewise used to make a tea to cure toothache and kidney problems. There are a great many more lists to talk about, and the full list can be seen on screen right now. At least a portion of these plants seem to be in the process of being domesticated. What's most interesting about this society within the Rekka Valley is that outside of a few secondary plants, the majority of plants overlap with the plants utilized in northern Albania and the Gora people of Albania and Kosovo. Traditionally, the Gora people and the northeastern Albanians have an ethnobody that does not overlap. Well, within the Rekka Valley, it appears that the cultural herbology of Northeast Albania and Gora people have been incorporated with their own unique herbology. And it makes sense considering that all three groups mentioned are very close to each other. Interesting is that the wild vegetables such as Rumex axillosia and Neurotichia diosa are also common vegetables used in Slavic countries. There's also overlap in the naming scheme for many different edible plants such as strawberries, blueberries, Gentinian species, Telia species, and Hypericum species. And several cultural uses of Salix alba or the common willow and Cornus moss, also known as the Cornelian cherry, seems to also have some cultural elements within the Rekka Valley. This indicates that the Rekka Albanians had at minimum important exchanges with their South Balkans Slavic neighbors. There are, however, some interesting original folklore that's unique to this region. The consumption of crocus bulbs and their close relatives is unknown in European folklore in terms of herbology. A closer example of a similar use for crocus species can be found only in Kyrgyzstan. The consumption of a mixture of cambium and sap of wild trees is also a trait found only within the Rekka Valley but not in the air parts of southern Europe. So less unusual, but still quite rare within Southern Europe would be the use of Bryonia alba and Sedum album as yogurt starters. The use of the latter has only been seen in northeastern Albania. 
whilst the former has only been used in rituals in ancient times gone by. It is speculated that the varying degrees of ethnobotanical diversity in terms of methodology and herbs used may be due to a combination of geographic isolation and later on Islamification. The Rekha Albanians have their own unique vision of a Rekha nationalism and the desire to create their own culture unique to Southern Europe, and a distrust of anything that would albacetize, slavonize, or otherwise subsume their culture into a greater whole. But several of the herbology aspects seem to be derived from both Bulgarian and Southern Serbia, which makes sense considering Slavic cultures have historically traded amongst each other, causing adoption or quasi-adoption of different rituals and beliefs. The consumption of crocus and their relatives are a strictly Middle Eastern phenomenon in terms of their origin, having no roots within Southern Europe or Europe in general. This indicates that the Islamification of that region brought with it the consumption of crocus species and their relatives. The consumption of sap from different trees such as beech and maple seems to be a Northern European thing indicating a perhaps ancient relationship between Northern Europeans and Slavic nations. It is also plausible that it could have developed independently within this isolated region. It appears that herbology was generally spread from Orthodox Christian females from mother to daughter, although there is some evidence of strictly male archaic plant customs, although those seem to be more obscure and well-guarded, culturally speaking. There's also strange indications that there's close relationships between the Sunni Muslim community and the Orthodox community prior to World War II, with intermarriages between both groups being used as a means to maintain peace. That book covers everything. Thank you for watching. For those interested in conservation, there's been a tragic loss of vegetation and botanical species throughout the world. Semi-arid environments are currently the third most depopulated environments in terms of overall vegetation cover. Amongst these are the Catatinga ecosystem, a semi-arid region of northeast Brazil, a region that covers 912,529 square kilometers. The ethnobotanical researcher Carvello is hoping that through the understanding of the botanical elements found within this region, interest in preserving the botanical life that dwells within this region will be of great interest. Currently within the region of Katinga, there is 18 genera and 55 species of cacti recorded within this region, widely distributed across this region. Currently this region accounts for 28.6 million people, and 36% of this population lives in rural areas with a limited infrastructure and cultural factors that lead to dependence on native vegetations by local populations. This has resulted in a slowly changing process of the ecosystem. Currently, exotic species are gradually being imported, and both native and exotic species are used for animal feed during the long dry season. The various cacti species are also used historically and right now within this region for medicine purposes, the creation of living fences, and ornamentation of houses, as well as human food. Currently, 10 different categories of cacti are used within common herbology and ethnobotany within this region. This includes Cereris, 
Jamaku, Zara species, Melocactus species, Nopalia, Cochophora, Afuntia deleni, Afuntia ficus indica, Philoceras golanali, Philoceras plachycladus, Taxigna ammonia, Taxigna and Paladrora. These plants are often used as food, indicators of the presence of another species of interest, fuel, construction, feed or fodder, religious ceremony, medicine, ornamentation, other, shade, technology, and veterinary. Which species are commonly used for different purposes are listed on a screenshot of the paper above. This indicates all the different research papers that have been made that cite the use of different species for different purposes, and these will be covered in further detail in our next few minutes. Suresh Jamaku is used for many different purposes and many different parts are used. The inner bark of this cactus is used to make sauces for treating inflammation. The fruit is consumed to treat blood pressure and worms. The pulp is used to treat tiredness, inflammation, cough, ulcers, and worms in a tea form. The roots historically used in a similar way to treat the thinning of blood, diabetes, backache, body aches, flu, swelling, inflammation, urinary, uterus, slash kidney inflammation, snake bite, and coughs. For Melocactus species, the pulp is either used on its own to make a sauce to treat whooping cough. It is also combined with Ceraceus jamaku, either the pulp to create Lembeter number one, as well as Tenkinga inomina to treat cough, flu, and cataracts. Melocactus is also used to make another medicine called Lembeter two, which is used to treat coughs, flus, and whooping cough. Philoscorus gonii has the foreign used. This foreign is bigger than the air forms of our cacti and are used to remove forms from other cacti by digging them out. Philoceras platycaticus, the root specifically, is used to create the medicine Garifada, which is used to treat inflammation. The fruit of Tenteca inomoya is used in its regular form to treat coughs and flus. It is also used to make Lambeder number one, alongside Melocactus pulp and the roots and pulp of Ceres jamacuru. As for other uses, Phalloceros plachycladus is used extensively by the people of this region to make torches and use as fuel. Its woody texture also makes it usable for making planks, doors, laths, windows, rich poles, and other materials that can be used in place of wood, because although it doesn't produce wood per se, it produces woody-like substances that functions roughly identical to wood. From a food perspective, the fruit of Pyloceras plachycladus, Ceres jamaku, Ophunta ficus indica, and Dakinda inomoya are all used commonly as foods. Ceres jamacuru and melocactus are also commonly used in medicine making and religious purposes. The most common diseases treated with these plants are common coughs and inflammation. From a religious standpoint, they believe that keeping cacti close to their house, especially in the shape of a cross, will keep away curses, evil spirits, and even crop pests. Now I cannot confirm or deny any of this, but it's their belief. Currently, 69.3% of the surveyed individuals within this location obtain the cacti materials from nearby forests in either granite outcrops or scrubs. 20% obtain their cacti from 
community areas such as enclosures or live fences from their property, and 1.98% do not collect the plants at all. Currently, the cultivated exotic species Ophunta ficus indica, alongside the other native species, are commonly used as fodder. It is especially used during drought conditions to raise goats and sheep. Ophunta ficus indica is only used to a small degree, reducing competition but also increasing reliance on native stock. Cacti populations have gone down in 2012 to 2014 due to the need for fodder via goats. In the absence of the technology to make a proper pasture to farm goats within a semi-arid region, there's heavy reliance on native cacti for foraging for their goats. It also appears that the preference that sheep have are for Cerus jamakuru. One such interesting factoid is that certain species only grow in certain areas and are often used as an indicator to what type of soil they're standing on and as such what other plants may be found within that region. In a very real sense, the locals of that area utilize every advantage they have regarding the plants to try to figure themselves out in the absence of the infrastructure that most people rely on. It is possible that this knowledge could be used to further codify and learn about the ecology of the semi arid region. The study also found that the two most commonly used species, Cerus germacaru and Palocerus plachychaetus, are most commonly used species. Since these species are also found in our regions of Brazil, these species are not in any danger of going extinct because of human action. So good news all around, and that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another herbal bonus. In this episode, I'll talk about a Paraguayan species of plant called Antochira acifolia, a herb found in Paraguay. The species comes from a plant family called Memorispermaceae, a family of many plants that have both medicinal and toxic uses. Many of these alkaloids found in this family of plants have been used to both make poisons such as strychnine and uh, venom found on poison dart frogs, as well as old forms of sedative used for putting people under during the mid-1900s. Paraguay is home to many Mennonite colonies as well as various aborigines, the latter of which has used this plant known by the common name Jewelax, various folk medications. Antotokaira arsifolia is a climbing woody plant. Most of the informants interviewed within this region consume this plant in winter. However, it can be consumed at any point in the season. The young stems are often chopped off the main stem, thrown into a fire, and once finished cooking, they peel off the black layer of charred skin and eat the rest. This vegetable is often dipped in either fish fat, salt, or wild chili. In modern times, fat from other sources like vegetable oils, fat from rendered cows, goats, and pigs are also increasingly used. The flavor is apparently equivalent to artichoke or asparagus. Some experiments have been done that showcase that it's possible that the fruit may be eaten as well. There are several mythical origin stories from these native cultures that talk about the origin of this plant. Most of them involve a figure called Tajawax, 
doing something incredibly stupid like either killing an animal that a local folk god likes, in this case the Dorado, or attempting to climb a tree that's very spiky. In both cases they wound up getting killed for the trouble, and the remains became divine used in folk medicine. Although I was unable to find any medicinal properties in this species, a close related species called Ondontokaira vitis does have unique properties. The following chemicals have been found within this species. B. amaran acetate, which has been experimented with to make a new anti-cholesterol drug. Fridelin, which is currently being experimented with to make new chemotherapy drugs. Beta cisterel, which has also been experimented with to make an anti-cholesterol drug. Neofoquinine, a type of anti-malarial drug. And patchoulin, the active ingredient in patchouli that makes it fragrant. It is possible that similar properties could be found within other species, including Ondontokaira erisifolia. And that all covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another herbal bonus video. In this episode, I'll talk about Guyanese ethnobotany. This paper is by Dr. Daniel Austin in 1992. The data was collected from various folk practitioners of Guyanese medicine which was a carryover from American Indian and African spiritualism, as well as Chinese medicine and Indian medicine carried over from people introduced from India. Many village elders and occultists have been interviewed for this purpose, and the researchers have obtained a great many recipes using different species of plant to create different recipes for medicine. And here are the results. The results were different plants and their common and scientific names have been listed, as well as recipe for a different medicine using each plant. The start of ants bush, known by the scientific name Spargan Forest Valinati. The leaves are crushed and the juice is mixed with breast milk and fed via a teaspoon to children to cure thrush. For black nightshade, known as Solanum nigrum, the leaves and stems are used to make a strange herbal tea that is used to improve kidney function. Black sage or cordia kilonastra is used by chewing on the stems for cleaning the teeth. A paste form is also used to treat fevers and headaches. Bird pepper or capsicum anionum or wild hot pepper is used to make hot sauce and laxatives. Bitter tally or mechania macrantha is used to brew a tea which makes you pee more and acts as a blood cleanser. Bovine Bush or Staphylfeta canadensis is boiled in its entirety to create tea to treat high blood pressure. Burra burra is used by this specific culture to make a tea from leaves for cleaning up the blood. Ripe fruits are also eaten and are tasty, tasting like very sweet tomatoes. Capadula is a vine species known as Doliocarpus major. A tea made from the stems is used to treat diarrhea. Carrion crow bush or Cassia lata is used for crushed leaf and stem extracts used to cure ringworm and fungal skin conditions. Chrysis bush or Lycopodium kernanum. The above ground portions of the plant are used to make a tea to treat fevers. It's also historically used in exorcisms and making Christmas wreaths and decorations. Christmas flower or Eupatorian odoratum. The leaves are used to make tea for cleaning the blood. Cockshun, known by the species Smilex, 
there's various species of Smilex used in this process. It is boiled with a bunch of our stuff and sugar. Following that, it's fermented and drunk to be an aphrodisiac for older men. The next species is Hepatitis pectinata, no common name. Leaves are used in tea for cleaning the blood. Congo cane, scientific name unidentified. The leaves are used to make tea to treat colds. Congo pump, Ceratopia species. The leaves of these red veined plants are used in tea to create teas that treat kidney problems and for cleansing the blood. Corellia or Marmata chanitia. These are used for blood cleansing in tea form. Cowfoot bush or Piper obiquum. The crushed leaves are used in infused bandages to relieve pain. It's also used in feminine hygiene products in folk medicine. Doveweed or Chamesi species. The entire plant and the roots of banana are brewed into a tea, mixed with rice bran, and consumed to treat female hemorrhaging. Footy, known by the scientific name Mamatora guinensis. Leaves are cooked with salt and applied to skin rashes, eczema, and fungal diseases. Garlic is used in cooking and to treat gas. Guava, or Pisism guava java, is used historically to treat dysentery through a tea made from its leaves. Ironweed is used as a tea made from leaves for cleansing the blood. It is known by scientific name Desmodium incum. Ink plant or Renamella escalflata is used for brewing tea to treat heart problems and indigestion. Mangrass or Lucine indica. The entire plant is boiled with black sage and any other non-poisonous plant. Mix with water into a bath of which the patient sits to treat colds, fevers, and malaria. It is also used for rituals involving women after childbirth. Man information bush or Lepidopa repelopera. The entire plant is boiled with other items such as sand bitters, Corellia, Urubali, and barks, and used to make what's effectively folk medicine Viagra. Printing fern, Pitigramma calamansos. Teas are made from this plant to stop female hemorrhaging and increase male stamina in the bedroom. It is also used to treat cuts and ulcers. Mayamal, Cassia occidentalis. Teas from these leaves are used to treat afterbirth problems. Teas made from the roots are used to treat stomach ache and colds. Ground seeds are used as a coffee substitute. Mini root, Aurella tuberosa. Tea made from the tubers is used for cleansing the blood. Money bush, plants poisonous. It is boiled with salt and placed on top of eczema or other skin problems. Monkey apple, Anona glabra. Outside of the edible fruit, the leaves and twigs are used to make a tea to treat nematodes and flatworms, sometimes in combination with fine remnants of simatu, a type of passion fruit. Mukka mukka, or Montrachira arborescens, leaves are used to make baths to treat skin problems. Pastelon, or Lewigia erecta, leaves are boiled to make tea that is used to treat weak but rapid heart rate. It slows heart rate when combined with soursop leaves, apparently. It is also combined with other elements like porridge, plantain, oatmeal, flour, sago flour, and other stuff to create a mix that is used to treat thrush. Periwinkle or Camphinus rosarius. Leaves are used in tea for cleansing the blood and treating diabetes and high blood pressure. 
pigeon pea leaves are boiled with salt and liquids used to create a treatment for running nose in females. Pitiquana or Ascalpus crucifaliaca, a paste made by mixing the crushed leaves, salt, and vegetable oil and bread together, is used to treat skin ulcers. Rock balsam, scientific name unknown. Fleshy leaves are toasted in hot cinders and liquid squeezed out of them. The liquid is then drank to treat common cold. Sand bitters, leaves are used in tea to make blood cleansing tea. St. John bush, Justica seculenda. The plants use the same way cow foot bush is used, but it's also used mixed with a bunch of other stuff to make a treatment for Desmond aurea. This mixture was also used historically to treat female infertility. Sarsaparilla, or Smilex species. An infusion created from roots is used to treat diarrhea and the clap. They're also used to make hard candies. Shiny bush, Peperoma pulicata. Leaves are used in salads and juices used to treat cataracts. A tea is also made from the leaves to treat asthma and bronchitis. Simitu, or Passiflora fotida. Whole plants used to make a tea that is used to get rid of nematodes and flatworms. Sarsop, or Anona mercata. Outside of its use as a fruit, the borrowed leaf are used to treat heart palpitations. Sweet broom, or Scorperia dulcis. The leaves are used to make a bitter tea for treating blood problems and skin problems. Sometimes sugar and milk are added to make it more palatable for young children. Sweet sage, Latana camera. A bitter tea is brewed from the leaves and buds for cleansing the blood, as well as treating colds and flus. Toyo, species name unknown, used for cleansing blood in tea form. Uribali, Yotrabala alata, leaves are used to brew a beverage for cleansing the blood and as a means of inducing vomiting. Plants extremely toxic, risk of death involved. Velvet bush, Wolfera indica, tea made from leaves and stems are used to treat ulcers and infections of the bladder. All black pepper or croton trinitatis. These are used in tea for cleansing the blood. White clary. Entire plants boiled to make a beverage that is used to treat heat rash. Scientific name Helotropin indicum. Wild green tea. Scientific name Caperia cassifolia. A tea made from the entire plants boiled and used to purify the blood and is also used to treat dysentery. Wild sorrel. Arena lobata. Entire plants used to make a sour tea, used to treat colds, and urinary tract problems, and morning sickness. Weary Weary, Capsicum Fruticens. This is basically the sweet pepper you know and love. The leaves are used for cleansing the blood in a tea form. Blue Fleabane, leaves are used in tea for cleansing blood. Creeping Wild Daisy, Radelia trilobata. It is combined with our stuff to make a thick liquid infused with honey and sugar to create a liquid that can be swallowed to treat coughs and colds. Zebgrass, Zebrina pendula. Leaves of purple zebgrass are used in tea for cleansing the blood and treating colds and flus. Well, that's all the listed folk remedies for different diseases using different plants in that area. And that book covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to the last herbal bonus for at least a while. For this episode, we'll be going a bit meta. We'll be talking about the history and origins and common uses of the study of ethnobotany. Ethnobotany is an amalgamation of taxonomy, nutrition, pharmacology, phytochemistry, paleontology, ecology, conservation, biology, 
and social sciences. This research method combines studying linguistics, the culture surrounding different plants, both in terms of artifacts and writings, as well as the people that practice said folk medicine. The primary founder of ethnobotany was John W. Harshberger. He was an archaeologist who, in 1893, developed a keen interest in plants. He proposed the idea of ethnobotany, the study of how plants are used by different cultures. It was originally developed as a means of studying how the then-wandering tribes within North America could be considered an intermediary between pure hunter-gatherer and modern agriculture society. Although Dr. Harshberger's cultural evolution assumptions are no longer accepted, the interest in wandering groups and tribes within Northern South America, especially the Amazon, tickled the fancy of many anthropologists, and so many attempts to classify and understand botanical systems within different and obscure cultures became well underway. The researcher Dr. Harold Konkin created the book The Relation of Hirano Culture to the Plant World in 1954 as his doctoral thesis, which explained the classification of plants within that particular society, how they were used, and their spiritual influence. During this time, he also attempted to find human universals amongst how plants and humans interact. As time went on, ethnobotany became tied with cognitive science. And as human cognition theories became tested against each other, ethnobotany broke up into different sections and substrains, as well as others doing more emphasis on one aspect of ethnobotany than others. This caused a vast split-up into many different factions within ethnobotany. This includes paleoethnobotany, which is ethnobotany of past cultures, including traditional management systems for plant resources. This is largely based on artifacts, as the culture is no longer in existence. Historical ecology, the understanding of people-plant relationships throughout time and space. Nutritional ethnobotany, the study of how to understand different nutritional components in the human diet within ethnobotanical framework. Medical ethnobotany, the study of plants for the development of new drugs, also called bioprospecting. Ethnobotanical classification systems, the creation of universal systems of naming and categorizing folk medicines in scientific thought. Cognitive ethnobotany, studying the distribution and forms of plant knowledge, learning styles, and knowledge transmission. Symbolic ethnobotany, the study of plants through folklore. Sensory and perceptual ecology, how the human senses are used to recognize and locate plants in an ethnobotanical framework. Quantitative ethnobotany, the measurement of biodiversity within a geographic region that's used for exploring how ethnobotany is used in this framework. Intellectual property rights, the legal study of of a cultural patent on specific pieces of botanical knowledge, which in my opinion seems like woke ethnobotany, but that's neither here nor there. Evolutionary ecology, the study of how the environment surrounding the culture has augmented the culture itself from an ethnobotanical perspective. Interpretive ethnobotany, the use of traditional wisdom, philosophies, and highlights of indigenous teachings regarding native plant sustainability. 
which is definitely woke ethnobotany. Agrodiversity, the focus on the conservation of local cultivars and species used in ethnobotanical situations for further use for future generations. Traditional agricultural systems, the study of how agriculture is done for specific cultivars and species used in a specific cultural framework. Ethnobotany and conservation, identifying and safeguarding biota in accordance with indigenous priorities. Political ecology, woke ethnobotany, historic migrations and ethnobotany, analysis on how human movements relate to ethnobotanical cultural memory of economic botany. Ethnobotany, due to its wide array of subclasses, has a wide array of methods, but surveys are often used, as well as artifact analysis, plant analysis, and are often based in obtaining trust within a specific indigenous community. Next we'll cover a key founder of ethnobotany, Richard Schultz. Richard Schultz was a distinguished who started the primary methods of survey collection, gaining the trust of the local people, and living with those communities for long periods of time to try to learn about how they live in order to understand the plants they use. This individual set up the primary methods that ethnobotanists use today in modern times. His primary studies were hallucinogenic plants, and he was the first to notice that within the Yanomani Indian Territory, he observed the use of a plant called virola as a hallucinogen being used by those people. He also studied various sacred plants in Oaxa, Mexico in 1941. He also spent, he also spent over a decade in the Amazon learning about different plants within that region. Learning about over 70 plants involved in making coars, which are poisons used in hunting. And he also set up a project which allowed for 226,000 acres to be protected in the Amazonian rainforest as part of the United Nations program, jointly with the Colombian government. And as a consequence, his methods and his studies became the basis for ethnobotany and became the world authority on hallucinogenic plants and medicinal plants in the Amazon. Which brings us to the last section of our video. Bioprospecting. Bioprospecting is the use of traditional medical knowledge within a specific cultural location to try to find plants that may be useful in making new drugs. Various plants have been studied over the ages for random collection of plant materials to try to find chemotherapy drugs to treat cancer. Two such species Camphota acumata and Taxus brevifolia were used in the creation of many different drugs. Pasataxel was derived from Taxus brevifolia and is one of the most commonly used chemotherapy drugs. Another common chemotherapy drug would be Topacan, a synthetic derivative of Campofetin derived from Campofeta acumata. Many institutions such as the United States National Cancer Institute or NCI have various regulations run through the National Cooperative Drug Discovery Group, or NCDDG program, which is controlled through the Developmental Therapeutics Program, Division of the Cancer Treatment and Diagnosis, DCT, using bioprospecting by looking over traditional botanical knowledge. The Brazilian group ICE in 1988 to prevent 
exploitation of cultural groups of interest being looked at, crafted a code of ethics stating that any knowledge obtained from said cultural group must be compensated for, and their knowledge must be treated like a patent or an IP of some sort. This was further codified in the coming action plan of United Nations. Some of the results of bioprospecting are new drugs or new chemicals that can be used to make the same drug from. Like for instance, an anti-HIV drug is biochemically quite similar to a plant-based chemical called Listervetsacils A-J, which was isolated in Litsia verculata. Currently, a number of different plant-based chemicals are being studied for their use in chemotherapy drugs for future use. Most of them are in the various stages of preclinical testing, including evaluation in animal models. And that book covers everything. Thank you for watching.